Oh, okay, great. So, uh, last week we began a series that looked at two passages, and in those passages, Jesus rebuked the people because they understood the signs of the earth and the weather, but they didn't understand the present uh, time that they were in. And what I want to do in this series is help you to understand the immediate time that we are in, not necessarily the time before the coming of the Lord. Okay? I don't believe we're there. I know there are a lot of people who everything that happens is a sign, but the, we already did a series on those events, and that's what we're looking for, not everything that's going on in the newspapers. So um, we're in a time when some of the dynamics of the end times are in operation. In the same way that John says, you know that Antichrist will come, even now there are many Antichrists, we know that we're in the last days. He's talking about this in a broader sense, and that's the sense that I want to talk about it. Uh, We are building through our households and our relationships an endurance, as the scripture says, and a commitment to survive the gathering storm that is in our time. And to help one another, and especially to help our children stand firm and steadfast in the Lord until the Lord gathers us together. And the uh, world that they are facing uh, is very different than the world that uh, many of us grew up up in, particularly myself uh, at my age. Now, I mentioned the contents of the gathering storm, and I put that up on the... uh, the sight, the wind, rain, and floods that overwhelm and break things apart. These are secularism, relativism, humanism, elitism, and utopianism. I'll be talking about those throughout the series. They strike at the social and cultural structures and break them apart, making their former benefit useless. That includes areas that we'll talk about, particularly in our discussions, of gender, sexuality, and marriage, race, ethnicity, and identity, and social concepts like freedom, justice, and security. What I want to do today is talk about and uh, underscore one of the major divides uh, that is part of this gathering storm. If you notice anything about a storm, the winds are blowing one direction in some areas, another area going the other way. It's pulling things apart, and that's, that's what I want to talk about. To do that, I have called this the secular world and the kingdom of God, but I'm not going to go into those so much as I'm going to talk about how the dynamic of secularism has affected not only our culture, but us as well. We're going to do that by looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. Colossians 2, 6 to 10. Written by the Apostle Paul, and in some sense, paralleling the Romans 12 passage, that you all know well about being not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. I'll talk about that verse at the end. Uh, But this verse, these verses say this, Therefore, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Talking about our behavior. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up. Notice that you've been established, you've been rooted, you've been secured, and now you're growing up in that context. You have to do that in that order. If you grow up without the roots, problems, right? So that's one of the things that we've been working on. 
having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive. This word means to carry you off against your will. Through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. So the idea here is that the Apostle is telling us that... uh, We are renewed in our minds by the Word and the Spirit. But here he says, uh, we've been formed and matured in Christ. And that we are in danger of being taken captive or carried away from the Lord and from His purpose by philosophy, empty deceit that is based on the traditions of men, which... Uh, are based on, and this is important, I want to make sure I make that clear. It's according to the reductionistic elements of the cosmos, that is material and cultural reality, instead of based on and according to Christ. There is a battle between having a mindset of the culture and the world and having a mindset of the kingdom of God. And we talk about this a lot. Um, Paul is very concerned that as the world goes one way and the kingdom goes another way, there will be a problem. Now, our problem is that for a while, the culture was very heavily influenced by the Bible. And by a more biblical worldview. But in my lifetime, that has been ripped apart at the seams. It actually happened before, but it, it has really come apart in that context. So, this is a specifically clear threat in our days. The modern era emerged after Judaism and Christianity had challenged something. At the time that Paul is writing this, there is a battle between paganism and Judaism and Christianity. Judaism and Christianity are not separate at this point, And paganism is the, the world system of the Greco-Roman world. That Greco-Roman world believed that the natural world and the spiritual world were connected So if something happened in the spiritual world, it would manifest itself in the natural world. Or they called it the unseen and the seen world. If something happened in the seen world, it would affect what was going on in the spiritual world. Now, Judaism and Christianity denied that. They didn't deny that there was a spiritual reality and a natural material reality, but they believed that the spiritual controlled the material, but the material did not control the spiritual. And therefore, we needed a revelation from God to tell us how we were to operate. And that was the idea behind the written text of the scriptures. What happened is, over time, Judaism and Christianity, for various reasons, 
overtook paganism, and paganism lost out. So that even people who were not necessarily believers had a mindset that there was a spiritual world that wherein God dwelt, and where the dead were, and where there were angels, and there was the natural world created by God, and that at death we would enter into that realm, because that was the eternal realm, and this was the temporal realm. And then came modernity. Modernity was a different perspective, particularly in the Greco-Roman Western culture. And it developed this thing that would ultimately be called modern science. Now, when modern science began, it took the idea of the old worldview that God who had created the material world created it with order and created it with natural laws. And therefore, those laws could be discovered by observation. And they would give glory to God who created it. But very quickly, the Enlightenment began to give a different perspective. The Enlightenment gave a perspective called secularism. Secularism emerged as an alternate to theism. And naturalism and materialism gave an alternate to the supernatural. In other words, we now had a science that was both secular... There's no God zone. This is why science classes aren't supposed to talk about God. You can talk about God in philosophy classes, but not in science classes. Because God doesn't exist in that area. It's a no God zone. And it's natural and sufficient. That is, when we do science, we will find the cause and effect answers in the science. Because the cause and effect is not outside the material reality. Again, a no-God zone. This is a different kind of science and introduced the idea of secularism. Now, what began to happen was that people began to see a way of doing science that would be unencumbered by religious dogma and teaching and by moral guidance. And it began with the natural sciences, astronomy, biology, and those kinds of things. And then, in the mid-1800s, it began to affect certain areas of philosophy. Before the 1800s, there was no behavioral science or social science called psychology or sociology or anthropology. There was mental philosophy a field of philosophy. There was social philosophy, a field of philosophy, and there was cultural philosophy. These ideas looked philosophically, not scientifically, philosophically at man, society, and culture. But in the mid-1800s, that changed as secular people, people who had real frustration against the religious worldviews began to move these fields out of philosophy and into the realm of science. 
And so the theologies, which is really what those were, philosophical theologies, became scientific theories, and the scientific theories had to be secular. That is, they had to be no God, and they had to be naturalistic. They weren't as much of that as they said they were, but they did. I'm going to give you uh, three examples of, of what those are. And most of you have heard this and know this. I just want this really in your mind. It's very important that your children understand this when they're in the schools and other institutions because this is the mindset and the worldview of the culture that we live in. In anthropology, Charles Darwin graduated seminary. He was, uh, he was a uh, seminary student. Uh, he liked the natural world, the creation world, and he ended up creating an idea, a notion of natural mechanism that he called natural selection as a functional alternative to creation. It gave a mechanism, a functional mechanism for the theory of evolution for the origins of human beings. No longer then do we need to be thought of as created in the image of God by God. We evolved from lower forms accidentally through some functional processes rather than purpose. And that became a major battle. In psychology, Freud who also hated religion, provided a functional alternative to the idea of sin. Especially what was understood at that time as mortal and venial sins, kind of felonies and misdemeanors of breaking God's laws. And what he did is he came up with the idea of mental illness versus health, with the problems of the illnesses being neuroses, that's the minor ones, and psychoses, which are the major ones. And he basically gave us a different way of looking at the problems of mankind. These things were interpsychic. They were not between us and God or us and other people in relationship to the idea of missing the mark in sin. It was the idea that there were mental illnesses that had to be dealt with. And they would be dealt with, not through religious ritual, but through therapy in that sense. There are implications to that as well. I'll talk about these all through this series. This, the last one is Karl Marx. Um, in sociology, suggested that the inability of mankind to provide justice and subsistence for all members of society was found in the idea of oppression and injustice through subsistence and economics. We don't need religion, which he thought was the opiate of the people. He thought that religion was a system to keep people in a false consciousness. What we really need is to get the people to uh, rise up against their oppressors which would then ultimately allow everybody to produce as they could and receive as they needed. And the way to do that was through a universal redistribution. Ideas that are, again, permeating uh, through our culture. 
Uh, and I'm going to talk about those as we talk about some of the things in here. So we now have secular theoretical alternatives to theology. That's really what's going on. There is a theoretical view that looks only at the physical world and the behavioral world, ignores the spiritual world because it doesn't exist, and therefore all the answers have to come from that observation and from human reason and human wisdom. The idea of spiritual reality and the idea of wisdom and knowledge coming from God is now removed. Now, man is not created. He evolved and is evolving. Human difficulties are not tied to sin, but to mental health and social oppression. We're even noticing that mental illness and mental health is being tied into sports more and more and performance more and more. Everything is about that and not about any concept of morality or other kinds of differences. And together we can solve these problems by tearing down the old theological ideologies and systems and by building new ones that are based on secular and natural science which ignores God and biblical revelation. And in its process, you should watch out to use a brand new paper. We have a new way of looking at things. We no longer look at them as purpose. What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of my being here? What is the purpose of the gospel? What is the function of everything? We look only at the function and the dysfunction. And that is arbitrated not by revealed uh, standards, but by standards of normalcy. You need to understand that. Normalcy means how often does it happen? By that standard, war is normal. By that standard, murder is normal. By that standard, rape is normal. Well, we can't have them be normal, so we'll make them mental illnesses that we can correct. But they're not moral and they're not about sin. So you have a very different way of looking at the world that is uh, difficult for people who are steeped in religion to see and very easy for people who have not been steeped in religion to, to see it clearly and only in, in those ways. Now what happened was this. Judaism and Christianity in the late 1800s and the early 1900s had to battle this, this emerging secularism. This idea that there was a new kind of understanding of human origins, human processes, and human goals. We don't need to go to heaven. We can make heaven on earth. We can make a utopia. But we have to do that through science and we have to do it without religion. So what do the religious people do? Jews and Christians split into three different directions trying to deal with this. I'm only going to talk about two of them. I'm going to mention the uh, one of them before the other two. But the two that I'm going to talk about are the, the ones that we really run into. But you're aware of the first one. The first one was a group of people who said, we're not going to be modern. We'll stay in the old 
pre-modern worldview, and we will not enter into that modern world. Okay? In Judaism, this was the what we call ultra-Orthodox. The ultra-Orthodox do not believe in modernity. They're limited on technology. They're going to stay in the traditions, and they're not, they're not coming. They don't want to get into the universities. They'll get into uh, their own yeshivas and schools. So they isolated themselves out. In uh, Judaism, I mean, in Christianity, the Catholics and Orthodox, many of them stayed in a pre-modern worldview, particularly among orders within those groups. And then among the free church, Baptists, those kinds, you get the Amish, who again, just said, we're not going into the modern world. We'll stay in the old world. That was not uh, a... uh, a combating of the modern movement. It was simply a removal from it. It was an escape from it. And many of us have tendencies of feeling that way. The two main splits was what secularism did to the church and to Judaism is it split a wedge that split the church and Judaism into two major sectors. One sector is more conservative, and the other one is more liberal. And this was called the fundamentalist modernist debates in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It happened throughout all the denominations, both in Judaism and Christianity. And what we got was a split in in those denominations. So, the modern liberal and modern conservative theologies ended up in certain groups of Jews and Christians. Liberal theology moved into uh, or became Reformed Judaism and is predominantly found in the Reformed uh, denominations of Christianity out of the Protestant movement. And they align themselves with the modern secular sciences and with the social sciences. And in order to do that, they had to reinterpret the scriptures. We're not going to take them literally anymore. We're going to alter that. So if the scientists tell us that sexuality is an orientation, then we have to see that the Bible didn't know about that. And therefore, anything it says about sexuality is not pertinent to us. That's how liberal theology works. It says, we'll keep the Bible, but it's last on the list. Science and reason is first, and then the Bible. On the conservative side, they were called fundamentals. Out of that came the term fundamentalist. The idea was that there were certain things that had to be maintained. We will take the Bible first, and then we will look at your science And we will look at your reason. If it contradicts the scriptures, then we're not going to accept it. That's conservative theology. Now this battle happened in an issue that makes it clear that this is about the Bible. So let me tell you what the five fundamentals were and the five alternatives were in the liberal side. And you'll you'll recognize that uh, uh, very quickly. The Bible is the inerrant revelation of God to us. The Bible is truth. On the modernist side, they said the Bible has errors in it, and we don't have to take it literally. It's a human book. 
On the fundamental side, Jesus was born from a virgin. Miraculous, supernatural change that invaded and incarnated into this reality. No, Jesus was a good teacher. There's no miracles. Connected to that, on the fundamental side, Jesus' death becomes the atonement for our sins. And therefore, the, the problem of sin, which is the human problem, is dealt with by the cross and ultimately by the kingdom to come. No. Jesus' death is an example of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. Jesus' resurrection, the fundamentalist said, was bodily, physically. He had to conquer death or it doesn't do us any good because we're stuck in these bodies as we've read earlier, right? It's got to be more than just floating off somewhere. There has to be a return to the restoration of the creation, what's called the new creation. No, the resurrection is a symbol of hope, renewal. That's the more liberal side. And then finally, the return of Jesus will be literal. This same Jesus who has been taken will come in like manner as you have seen him go. No. The idea of uh, the return of Jesus is the idea of progress. We will, we will continue to improve because that's what evolution does. And, and we will adapt and we will ultimately reach our a human utopia, will conquer poverty, will conquer crime, will conquer war, will conquer starvation, will conquer all of those things, but will do it by human progress. So, the church got split down the middle, and what happened over time is that the conservative church began to separate itself from the world. We'll stay over here. Okay. Those who are the most conservative start pulling out of the schools. They pull out of the social systems. And what began to happen is people who were in the more secular framework and more liberal in theology moved into all of those spots. So that now the institutions of this culture are predominantly secular and if religious at all, they are religious in the more liberal framework. So, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. The degree to which a person thinks of time and space where God is absent or non-existent is the degree of their assimilation. Many evangelicals and Baptists and born-again believers live most of their life as secularists with a compartmental religious aspect that is Sunday or Saturday or when there's a wedding or something like that. All of a sudden, the religious trappings come out. But for the most part, they are secularly minded. And the reason for that is experience. So here's the point of this whole, this whole thing. 
You can study the Bible and memorize the Bible and still be as secular as anyone else. Many of the top Bible scholars in the universities in America are not believers. But they are brilliant scholars of the Bible. The difference between somebody who is possessing a biblical worldview is their experience. Experience is what begins to form, reform, and uh, mature our religious experience. So that when you are functioning and you see something, you interpret it through that biblical lens. But that lens has to be experienced. It can't simply be taught or studied. If you experience life mostly apart from God's presence and His watch care, you will become self-sufficient and you will tend to think secularly and secular arguments will make sense. And if you experience and interpret life through the presence and will of God, you will reinforce a biblical worldview and resist assimilation. And that's why ritual and the holy days and the spiritual disciplines are all critical to not only our formation of being rooted, but our growing up in Him. They counter the secular experience. But if they don't have greater weight in the way you treat them, your children will not treat them with greater weight either. And that's why the interaction in community and household and congregation and the larger body of Messiah is critical. So now I want to end with the Romans 12 passage that you all know well. But I want to read it to you in context. So here's what Paul says. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice he begins with the physical you. Present your behavior to God. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's done by the Word and the Spirit, and it's brought into you by experience, so that you may demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Through the grace given to me, I say to you, uh, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It's your faith maturity that matters. So that as we have many members in one body and are all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Not members of Christ. We are members of Christ, but we're members of one another. We have to have communal experience. There has to be a sense that I am a believer and we are believers for that experience to be reinforced in your children and in yourself. So he gives us this admonition that as individuals and as a relational community, we need to resist and counter the pressure of assimilation for ourselves and our children and our converts. That is going to become more and more difficult 
as the culture around us becomes more and more secular and more and more dismissive and in some places hostile to our faith. And that's why the home and your daily experience, there has to be daily experience of practicing the presence of God, practicing the body of Christ, practicing those things. It's got to be your experience. Now, I have friends. I've told you this before. When, when I was in rock and roll, I had friends who loved rock and roll. But I was in a band. And Dave and I memorized over four hours of music that we could play, and we sang that regularly. And to this day, I have all kinds of stuff that's triggered when I hear those songs. I heard a lot of them last night. Okay? And those songs trigger all kinds of things for me. I want, when I see something, not to trigger my old rock and roll mindset, but to trigger biblical content. If this world is not having God's word scream back at you, that's not right. That shouldn't be that way. You, why did you do that? If, if God's word is not informing your conscience... then you don't have a biblical worldview. The scripture says as we become mature, that allows those who have exercised their senses to discern good and evil. Our categories are not holy and secular. They're holy and common. They're good and evil. They're godly and ungodly. The biblical categories are different for us. And we need to be thinking and acting within those categories. Not artificially, but out of a genuine experience. And I'm hoping to help you with how to do that. Uh, but I'm going to shut up now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.